What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have Stephen Kinzer, who is an award-winning journalist and an amazing author. He spent more than 20 years as a foreign correspondent and covered more than 50 countries, and he is currently a lecturer at Brown University's Watson Institute. So it's an incredible interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So without further ado, Stephen Kinzer. Welcome to the show, Stephen. How are you? Well, considering the subject that we're about to discuss, I'm a little disconcerted, but I had to spend a couple of years working on this subject, so I'm still a little bit in that mindset. I think the best place to start with that in regard, and I do have a a quick question for you. What does the name Sydney Gottlieb mean to you? And we'll get into, and that will introduce the, the, the listeners to your work, but I really am kind of curious what his name means to you. During the time I spent working on this book and in the period thereafter, I came to conclude that Sidney Gottlieb was the most powerful, unknown American of the 20th century. He had what amounted to a license to kill issued by the U.S. government. And he used this license all over the world. He set up experiments that were often fatal in Asia, in Europe, uh, in Latin America. So he was um, a remarkable figure, but he lived in complete obscurity. So my book, Poisoner in Chief, is essentially the biography of a man who wasn't there, a person who didn't exist. And it was quite a challenge to try to put together the strands of his life the best I could under those challenging circumstances. He, he's, yes. And by the way, it's a fantastic book, The Poisoner and, and Chef. You, you, you've, got to, you've got to read it. Um, it, it covers Project MK, MK Ultra, which we'll get into. And I think my favorite part is what I didn't realize is how connected that project MK Ultra was to Project Paperclip. And then I also, you know, one of the things that, and I don't want to give too much away, but another thing that I didn't know is, is, is I believe it's a unit 731B, which is a Japanese unit uh, in World War II that did a ton of experiments on the Chinese and even American soldiers. We, I didn't know that we incorporated their scientific minds under the United States umbrella either. So that was a very fascinating and troublesome thing. Um, you know, when it comes to talking about that, there's obviously a lot of moral implications, but at the end of the day, in your opinion, do you think we made the right decisions absorbing these terrible, but also brilliant minds? This is my 10th book. In my other books, I've discovered a lot of things that surprised me and they may have shocked some readers. But this is the first time I've been shocked. I still can hardly wrap my mind around the fact that there was a, such a program as MK Ultra and such a person as Sidney Gottlieb. It's truly an astonishing untold story. As you point out, a part of that program was based on research that was carried out in Nazi concentration camps and in this ridiculously gruesome, horrific set of experiments that were carried out by the Nazis' counterparts uh, who were Japanese. Uh, 
When Gottlieb began MKUltra, he approached it from a scientist's perspective. He asked himself the question, how are we going to find research on this subject? So what is the subject? Gottlieb had decided that before you could find a way to implant a new mind into someone's brain, you first had to find a way to destroy the mind that was in there. That was the basis for all of his grotesque experiments. So, again, as a scientist, he asked himself, what research can we already use? What's out there? Who knows how to destroy a human mind and a human soul and a human body? Who knows how the human body responds to all manner of tortures? Well, the obvious answer would be the Nazi concentration camp doctors and their Japanese counterparts. So he felt no compunction about hiring and working with these Nazi doctors. Now, while I was writing Poisoner in Chief, I went to Germany and I visited what I think might be the first CIA secret prison. It's a lovely chalet at the end of a lane outside of Frankfurt. It looks like it could be a and b have a nice wine bar down there. Uh, and the guy who now owns it is a young uh, real estate developer, a young German entrepreneur. He took me down into the basement and he said, these storage rooms are the places where Gottlieb and the CIA doctors had their cells and where they conducted experiments that were just continuations of the experiments they had conducted in the Nazi concentration camps just down the road only a few years earlier. One of the bizarre aspects of this collaboration is that Gottlieb himself was Jewish. His parents had emigrated from Europe in the period before the Second World War. If they had not emigrated, if they'd stayed there, they probably would have been arrested in one of those Nazi sweeps, and young Sidney might have been the victim of one of these grotesque experiments. But in the event, Gottlieb didn't seem to have any problem working with those Nazi doctors. Now, you ask, was it worth it? You have to put yourself back in the mindset of the time. Uh, this was the height of the Cold War. There was a sense uh, in America, uh, fomented, of course, from Washington, that we faced this implacable enemy in the Soviet Union and communism. And it was coming not only to destroy us, but to wipe away the entire possibility of meaningful human life on Earth. If you believed that, then the loss of a few lives, the torturing of a few people, or the killing of a few hundred people would seem like a very small price to pay. Commitment to a great cause is one of the principal uh, and most attractive justifications for committing immoral acts. Patriotism is one of the most noble causes of all. Therefore, I think they felt that they were doing something that was absolutely essential. Uh, they believed that the Soviets were on the trail of the same secret. How do you control a human mind? And at the CIA, they realized something that is certainly true, which is that if you could ever find out that secret, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. 
So at that moment, uh, they were carried away with this idea that we were under imminent threat and that the CIA was essentially the only thing holding back absolute catastrophe, not only for the United States, but for all humanity. So I think one of the lessons uh, of this is that uh, you want to pull yourself back from the anxieties of the moment and look at your projects in a deeper way and ask yourself if this is really necessary. I think they got so carried away with this narrative that they fed each other that uh, they felt anything was justified. And indeed, some of the CIA agents of that era have written this, that we were all in complete paranoia at the time. Now, I teach at Brown University and I talk about the Cold War and I tell my students how important it is to put yourself back in the mindset of the time. But I think even I myself can't really do it. You have to have been there then. Now, that in my mind does not justify it. I think one of the lessons that we take away from this is that there have to be some fundamental standards of legality and science and morality. Now, bear in mind that the United States had just come out of the Nuremberg trials after the Second World War, including doctors' trials, in which doctors were convicted and hanged for doing the kind of things that the CIA went on to do only a uh, few years later. So that's the reason why the so-called Nuremberg principles were never put up on the wall anywhere that Sidney Gottlieb worked. D definitely not. He's, he's a very... I, find, I found him to be a very fascinating human being. Evil, but like also very self-aware and he he's he picked up on a lot of you know i think of the 1950s america 1960s america as like a you know the the jetsons i mean i didn't live it but you think of this like nuclear family like you know high morals very conservative like standard of living is is up everyone's you know we won the war and then there's this guy that's like i don't know i don't really believe in judaism i'm, I'm more spiritual i want to get into meditation just a very for that period of time a very different almost awake type of person that that is committing terrible atrocities and obviously someone you can't trust, you know, we will get into uh, him dosing his own doctors too with LSD without them. Like to me, when I read that, I, I, I was like, he's gone. He, he, he's gone. He, he, there is no rationale now. It's just a, it's, it's just a sign, a mad scientist that is, that has no checks, no nothing. It's just, he's just doing, he's just doing whatever he wants to do at this point in time. And um, I, I feel like, go ahead. That's what makes Gottlieb so fascinating as an individual. Yeah. So he was the most prolific torturer of his generation. You want to posit him as truly an evil figure. On the other hand, his personality and the way he lived seems so contradictory to what he did in his day job. This was a guy who lived differently than probably any civil servant in the whole U.S. government during the 1950s. He didn't live in a little a gated community and a little ticky-tacky house. He built himself kind of an eco-cabin in the Virginia woods. He didn't have running water because he thought running water could be dangerous to the environment and to human health. He got up before dawn to milk his goats. 
He was an organic eater. He studied Buddhism. He wrote poetry. By his own account, he took LSD at least 200 times. <laughs> so he had this strange bifurcation. And I sometimes used to wonder, maybe he'd leave the office and when he was driving home and driving over the bridge, over the Potomac, did he kind of shed the personality that he had in the office and then become this sort of proto-hippie and then have the reverse go on when he went back to work the next day? So while I, all of my books are strictly fact-based, everything in there has a footnote. Nonetheless, although I don't like to get into the area of speculation in my books, I had to make an exception in this one case where I asked myself, how is this possible? How can this person also be the same as that person? How could he have fit that together? Now, we don't know because Gottlieb always refused to speak about MKUltra. After he died, his widow brought their four children together, then adults, and made them promise that they would never speak about their father to anyone. Uh, and unfortunately for me, they've kept that promise. I was not able to get any of them to talk. So we don't know how he put this together. But I have a speculation just Tell based me. on my couple of years of living in this little room with Sidney Gottlieb's spirit and ghost. It. I think this might have been one way that he would rationalize it. He would say, I'm a real individualist. I don't live like other people. I chose my own life. It's different from other people. And that's a great thing about freedom and a great thing about America. The people can live any way they want. Now, if Soviet communism conquers the world, that will not only mean that we're under a different political system, it will mean that there is no possibility of meaningful human life anywhere on earth. And that a person like me will never be able to survive, will never be able to live, will never be able to exist. Therefore, to defend the freedom that has given me this meaningful life and allow other Americans and other people in non-communist countries to enjoy this fulfilling life, it's absolutely essential that we carry out every project we can imagine to stop the onslaught of this evil force. So I think maybe that's the way the Gottlieb Yin and the Gottlieb Yang can be put together. I think, yeah, I think I, and that, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Cause you know, one of the, and this was a little off topic, but one of the things that I've been, I've been really into foreign policy lately. Um, one thing that I found is I, I'm a huge fan of history and in order for me to understand the world, I need to understand, you know, how we got to this, this point. And when you start doing that, you know, you, you start looking back at even our own history, you realize, you know, up until probably the 19, well, 50, late 50s, we were really, we, were, we would generally do the right thing. We, we, we generally had okay, pretty okay-ish foreign policy. And then after like the 50s, 60s, 70s, it kind of, that all kind of went down. And one of the things that's been hard for me to to realize is, is that we're not always the good guys um, in history. And in fact, you know, a lot of the time, we're the bad guys. Uh, we've got great ideals, but in order to execute those ideals, we, we get involved 
do things called regime change and sometimes just end up mucking up a, a lot of like flourishing movements that might not be they might be very pro the people but not necessarily pro america so that's been something that that i when i look at this i look at his footprint on the intelligence community and all the black sites that were then invented all of a sudden we had places to torture people and do horrendous things to them in in countries that didn't have laws that were really low on human rights and you you look at like the wide sweeping implications of what this man was able to accomplish and then you know you kind of forward that with the war on terror terror you know we i don't know that, <laughs> i don't know that we've really learned anything from all the, from this case being brought to the public light, I don't think we've changed. That's kind of my opinion. I'm curious to see if you feel the same thing. Well, much of what you say about the United States is true. Bear in mind that it's also true of all empires. Uh, these yeah. are political forces that make uh, imperial leaders believe that their political goals are so great that the human cost is almost irrelevant. Now, what you're doing and what you just said is what they call at the CIA, walking the cat back after an operation, or especially if it goes wrong. They walk the cat back and go back to one stage and then the stage before that and the stage before that. Uh, so let's try to walk the cat back on MKUltra, this mind control project. What made Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA director, Alan Dulles, and the clique that ran the CIA during the 1950s believe that mind control was real. Actually, after all the years of dis destroying uncounted lives, Gottlieb himself concluded there's no such thing as mind control. You can't make a person go out and commit murder if they're deeply opposed to murder. So what got them off on this wild path? Well, I think there are at least two good reasons. One is that uh, the CIA greatly misinterpreted two historical episodes that happened right at the beginning of the Cold War. The first was the trial in Hungary of that country's Roman Catholic prelate, Cardinal Mincenti. He was arrested by the communist authorities. He was held in prison for a number of months. Then he was put on a public trial. At that trial, he confessed to crimes that he obviously had not committed. Uh, now, we now know that Mincenti was coerced with the same techniques that jailers have been using since forever. He had extended isolation and repeated intense interrogations and beatings, but that's not the way the CIA saw it. They not only noticed that he had said things that obviously weren't true, implicating himself in crimes he hadn't committed, but they looked at the way that he behaved. They saw his eyes seemed glazed and that he spoke in a kind of monotone. This led them to believe somebody else is controlling this guy. Somebody has taken control of Cardinal Menzenti's mind and is speaking through his body. That means that the communists have indeed discovered the secret of mind control. This could be disastrous for us because anybody that can discover that secret is truly on the path to global mastery. Uh, therefore, it's urgent that the United States start a project to try to do this ourselves, to find out how to control people's minds. 
The second episode happened in Korea. A number of American prisoners who had been taken by the North Koreans and brought to China in some cases had written denunciations of the United States, uh, including critiques of racism in the United States. Several of them confessed to committing war crimes, including using germ warfare, which the United States to this day insists never happened. And the CIA asked themselves, how could these strapping young men have done these things? They couldn't have done it because they were thinking or because they were reflecting or because they had been tortured in just normal ways. Somehow they'd been psychically controlled. The outsiders, their jailers had seized control of their minds, possibly when they were on a train through uh, Manchuria, which is how we got that phrase by the Manchurian candidate. So these mm -hmm. two episodes electrified people at the CIA. They gave them the inside tip that the Soviets were either far advanced in the study of seizing people's minds or had already solved the mystery. That wasn't true, but that's what they believed infected by the climate of the time. Now, I also believe there might have been a second reason why they were open to believing this stuff. And I think it has to do with popular culture. Think of all the books, all the movies that have been produced over a century about mind control. All those films about somebody drops a pill in someone's drink and the next thing you know, the person is mindless and under their control. Or the guy that just swings a little pocket watch in front of someone's eyes for a few seconds and the next thing you know, that guy's willing to go back to his embassy and steal documents <clears throat> and give them to someone else. Uh, these fantasies, I think, led the CIA officers to believe that what novelists and screenwriters could imagine, they could also make real. So that created the fertile ground for them to believe this. Then these other episodes set them off in the direction of a kind of a panic. And given the stakes that they saw, they felt that there was no reason to impose any legal or moral restrictions on what they should be allowed to do in order to save the world from what they saw as an imminent threat, which in reality did not exist. 100%. But I, I mean, we were talking, I think, to me, one of the freakiest things, and I might get the name wrong, it's, it's still early here, but Project Ocean Spray. It, it, do I, I believe I have that right. Uh, John, Google that, make sure. We sprayed... Uh, to to mimic like a biological attack on the West Coast, they sprayed what they thought. I mean, it pretty pretty much was. There's only a few people that died. Like, um, go ahead, you got it. Yep, okay. yeah, you are correct. It's OSHA uh, operation. Okay, there you go. spray, right? They, and what was it? What was it? What uh, what type of uh, bacteria did they spray? Uh, they. Okay, I'm gonna butcher this. I apologize to any biologists. Uh, Seradia. Uh, mass recent. Yeah, it has a long Latin name. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, they sprayed yeah. some 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 benign bacteria to 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 simulate an attack to see to see if we could get away with it. And a few people got sick, got urinary tract infections, and then one person died that just got done. I think he had colon cancer or whatever, and he was in recovery. He got sick and died. But the fact that they were able to do this, like we were testing Americans, uh, you know, in the name of safety. 
you know, that, that to me was like, that freaked me out because I feel like the best indication of the future is what has occurred in the past. And I, you know, I'm not, they've done that before. Who knows that they're doing this now? They probably are. But um, yeah, I wanted to put that out there. So Operation Sea Spray really was a bizarre uh, project uh, it, because it not only involved the CIA, it involved the U.S. Navy. They had to get a real ship, a warship, and then re retrofit it. What they did was uh, they wanted to test how uh, spray clouds could be used to uh, spread over whole populations. Could we, for example, weaponize and aerosolize some kind of mind control chemical and then spray it over a city. So they wanted to try to see how these kinds of large-scale sprayings could work. They retrofitted this U.S. Navy vessel and they sent it into San Francisco Bay. They chose San Francisco because they thought that with the chronic fog there, maybe the fog from their own ship wouldn't be so clearly noticed. And they set up monitoring systems not only in San Francisco, but in various suburbs, to try to see how far the spray would go, uh, how dense it would be, how much it would dissolve. So they did use a benign spray, which actually did, as you say, cause some people to fall ill and it caused at least one death. Actually, one of the doctors at a hospital who treated some of these people wrote a medical journal report about this, and he said, we have no idea where these ailments might have come from. Uh, if this wasn't the only thing that uh, the CIA and MKUltra did to try to test aerosolized sprays, they also did things like uh, carry, they would uh, take light bulbs, fill them up with these toxic sprays, or at least benign versions of them, and then they'd drop them in New the New York subway just to see if uh, that could be used as a possible technique for attacking people in other cities. Uh, so they really were trying to figure out uh, two things at the same time. One is, what's the poison? What's the chemical compound that's going to allow us to seize people's minds? And at the same time, once we figure it out, what would be the means for spreading this? So uh, the CIA and even the U.S. military were interested in these kinds of chemical control projects, not only to seize control of the minds of individuals, which is really what MKUltra was about, but also how to use these, pro these chemicals, if we could ever discover them, on entire populations. Jeez. Jeez. I do, I do want to speculate a little bit. Um, do you think, like in your estimation, you're, you're pretty much an expert at this, do you think that we're still trying, maybe not chasing this this rabbit hole? Because I don't, I don't believe that you could ever pharmacologically control another human being. At least I hope not. But I do think that with the advent of technology, and we're looking at, you know, people are looking at. We have uh, what's Elon Musk is working on um, one. I cannot think of the name. Um, What's that called? Neuralink. So there's Neuralink and chips. I think that that might be, I think that at some point it might be possible to take over someone's free will. Um, probably not in our lifetimes, but do you think that this is still an avenue that other, that various intelligence agencies are pursuing? When MKUltra came to an end at the end of the 1950s, 
Gottlieb admitted that it's a uh, fool's errand. There is no such thing as mind control. You cannot take over a person's mind. Now, he had done more experimenting in that area than anybody, and I think he was right. But he was right at the moment that he said it. That was a long time ago. That was 70 years ago. Think of all the advances in computer technology, in neuroscience, in artificial intelligence that have been made since then. So the question, is mind control possible, was closed at the end of the 1950s. But I don't think it's still closed. I think it's opened up again. It just doesn't make sense to think that uh, nobody in covert agencies in the United States or maybe elsewhere are working on these kinds of projects. Uh, I, I really have some confidence that uh, maybe in 50 years there'll be another Stephen Kinzer who will be writing about bizarre experiments that were going on back in the 2020s. Uh, I, I, it just seems logical to me. If, if no secret service in the world is trying to figure out how to influence people's minds or see, solve the secret of mind control, I'd be very surprised. I'd wonder why aren't they doing it? Given the advances that we now have, it just seems logical that uh, secret services would be trying to weaponize those advances. So you use the word speculation. That's exactly what this is. But by the nature of these projects, you never know about them when they're going on. If I had published Poisoner in Chief at the end of the 1950s, nobody would have believed it. They would have thought it was too incredible. And I just have to guess that something similar might be, or something comparable might be going on right now. That's, it would I be mean, foolish to believe otherwise, that they just decided, oh, we figured out in 1959 that there's no such thing as mind control, so let's just forget that forever. That just doesn't make sense to me. Does, it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm, I'm glad that, I'm, number one, I'm glad people like you exist. Like 100%. These, you, you've published so many books. I mean, I'm right now very obsessed with... Iran and what's going on there. And I've read, um, I believe it's a, a Iran and Modern History, 1720 to Modern Day um, by John, pull his name up. Kazvinian. Kazvinian, thank you. Fantastic book. And you have All the Shah's Men, which is on the list, and I will be reading that sh shortly. Um, but I just, I, I can't. All this, all the foreign meddling and all these things, um, in the knowledge that you have accrued about what the things that we've done are very important. Because I feel like we live in a time now where I, and maybe this is just me looking at the, the situation wrong, but I feel like there, a lot of people do trust the government. And I have never been one of those people. So it's books like yours are so important to just kind of, to, to see the things that we've done and the things that we are capable of doing. It's really hard to, to realize that we're not always the good guy. And we are ju we're just like everyone else, maybe more so, right? That's maybe a better way to, to say it, what I'm trying to say. So... I would say that uh, the United States has probably intervened in more foreign countries over a longer period of time than any other country. Um, we have overthrown governments on every continent, except maybe Antarctica. Uh, and the CIA is very active, and now there are whole other agencies that are doing the kind of work that the CIA did 
in its heyday. Uh, so how has the United States justified this? We've always believed that we're a special country. That was the idea, the principle we know as American exceptionalism. Essentially what that means is that there have to be rules in the world. Someone has to set those rules. We appoint ourselves as the rule maker for the world. It decides how far countries can go, what they're allowed to do, and what they are not allowed to do. And then we act uh, when we feel like they've violated those rules. But exceptionalism also means that we don't have to obey the rules. Other countries do, because they're selfish and greedy. They only act in their own interest, whereas the United States is acting in the enlightened interest of the whole world, even though the whole world doesn't really realize this. It's based on the principle that we know more about what's good for the world than the world itself knows. Uh, and I think the underlying feeling is that, first of all, most of these interventions in the end will be good for that country, even though people there might not realize it at the time. Go all the way back more than 100 years to when we seized the Philippines in 1898. President McKinley said that, uh, did we need their permission to carry out this great act for humanity? He said their children and their children's children will thank us. In other words, even if the people now hate us. So we, as, and as Madeleine Albright, our Secretary of State under the, in the Clinton period said, we are the indispensable nation. We stand taller and we see further. So this arrogates to ourselves uh, a certain set of privileges. And we get very frustrated when people in other countries don't realize that what we're doing is actually in their good in the long run. And the second caveat to that is that even if there are countries that we devastate, that actually don't wind up better for our intervention, these interventions will at least increase the power and influence of the United States. And since the United States is always a force for good in the world, anything that increases our power and influence is good for everybody. This is one of the great fantasies that shapes our foreign policy, and it's one of the reasons why people around the world are less and less willing to support the idea that the United States knows what's best for them. Yes, I, and I agree. And that's, that's I mean, that, these books have opened my eyes. Like, I, I haven't paid that much attention to foreign policy. I like to, I like to look at geo, like a foreign or geopolitics. I think that's very interesting to me and, and John. But our foreign policy, the one thing that the, the reoccurring theme is, we don't use diplomacy as a weapon, right? We don't, we, we have, it is such the Mongols were fantastic at it. Sometimes the Romans were, but not really, right? Uh, but the Mongols were really good at diplomacy. And so were, so were some of the other uh, empire, great empires, especially the, um, the, the, the Persian Empire. They were also amazing at diplomacy. But we don't use it as a weapon. Like, we always want to get involved, and we always want to, like, we want to use brute force. And if we could figure out how to use diplomacy better... Uh, and then I'm not, you know, I'm also not realizing how ignorant I was to how bad sanctions are. They don't really hurt the government at all. They just hurt everyday people. And I, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out, this is one of the questions that, it's a little off topic, but how, you know, we could be better at that and what would maybe be a better 
a better tool to use as, as opposed to sanctions. I don't know if you have any ideas. You've lived in, I think, what, over 50 countries. You've been on the ground when when we are doing regime change. So I just, I think that you would be a good, a, a much wiser person to comment on this than I would. Diplomacy in some ways runs against some deep uh, instincts in the American soul. Yeah. Americans don't like to understand things. We like to do things. Yeah. Diplomacy by its nature is about compromise. It's about recognizing other people's interests. You sit around the table with representatives of other countries to solve a problem. It means that you're not gonna get everything you want. You have to get an agreement in which everybody leaves the table thinking that they got something. But we don't like that. We wanna get everything. <laughs> and you can only do that through military force. We actually in the United States spend more money on our military bands than we spend on our entire diplomatic corps. I think Americans have this sense that diplomacy is kind of a sign of weakness. And I trace this back in particular to one specific episode and you still hear about it. So in 1939, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Neville Chamberlain, flew to Munich and uh, made a deal with Adolf Hitler and then came back and said, I think we've made now peace for our time. That turned out to be wrong. Now. The lesson to draw from that episode is that Neville Chamberlain was wrong to trust Adolf Hitler. But that's not the lesson we learned. The lesson we learned is diplomacy is all fake. You can never trust anybody. You should never negotiate. It's all going to end up badly. So diplomacy in itself is a sign of weakness in the American mind. Uh, and it really is one of our fundamental problems, uh, as, you, as you point out. We are... Uh, eager to use force and frustrated with diplomacy because diplomacy takes time and never produces a 100% victory, which we imagine we're going to get by interventions. These foreign interventions in which we overthrow governments often seem very successful at the time. You mentioned Iran. In 1953, the CIA overthrew the democratic government of Iran and therefore ended democracy in Iran forever. Uh, now, that intervention seemed like a big success at the time. We got rid of a guy we didn't like, Prime Minister Mossadegh, who had nationalized the oil industry in Iran. And mm -hmm. we replaced him with a guy, the Shah, who would do whatever we wanted. So it's the perfect ending. If only history would stop. <laughs> but history doesn't stop. There are long-term repercussions. So just to take the Iran example, the Shah ruled with our support for 25 years, always with increasing brutality. That dictatorship produced the explosion of the late 1970s, what we call the Islamic Revolution. That brought to power this fanatic and repressive clique of anti-American mullahs that's still in power. Uh, that uh, revolution also uh, led Saddam Hussein next door in Iraq to decide, Iran's in chaos, I think I'll invade. That invasion led the United States to take the side of Saddam Hussein. That began our death embrace with Saddam that spiraled down into the whole Iraq tragedy. And that Islamic revolution in Iran also terrified the Soviet Union. They were afraid that radical Islam would penetrate through their Islamic uh, republics. That's part of what led the Soviets to invade Afghanistan, which brought us into Afghanistan. 
So a lot of history came from uh, three weeks of CIA operations <laughs> in Iran in 1953. These interventions have long-term consequences, and Americans are uh, very uh, unwilling to confront that fact. They have a, an immediate problem. We want an immediate answer. We got the immediate answer we wanted, but in the long run, it wound up terrible, not just for the target country, in this case, Iran, but also for our own security. Yep. Now, you mentioned sanctions, which I think is a very important issue that Americans don't really focus on. I know. Sanctions are us. Every time we don't like somebody, sanctions. We have literally thousands upon thousands of sanctions on people and countries and industries around the world. No other nation does this. Now, I've lived through three sets of sanctions that I've observed very close up. One was the sanctions that we put on Serbia, uh, Yugoslavia during the 1990s. Then I lived through the sanctions in Iraq, which were devastating. I watched children in Iraq, babies dying in the hospital, and the doctor's telling me right across the border in Lebanon, I can buy in the pharmacy for a few dollars the pills that will save this baby, but I can't get those pills because we're sanctioned. And then I saw the third one, go. it's happening in Iran right now. That's what's caused the great economic collapse in Iran. I remember meeting with a United Nations official in uh, Iraq, during the time when Saddam was in power and sanctions were very intense. And he held up a, a lead pencil to me. And he said, I want to import lead pencils to give to the schools, school children here in Iraq, but I'm not allowed to do that. Sanctions don't allow me because under the sanctions, not only can Iraq not receive military equipment, it cannot receive anything that's what they called dual use. In other words, a civilian plane that could be converted to military or a civilian, anything civilian that could be used for military purposes. He said, so the Americans have decided that the lead from inside this pencil could be extracted. It could then be ground into a powder. That powder could then be placed on the front of an airplane and it would make that plane difficult to detect by radar. So for that reason, I can't bring pencils into Iraq for the children here. So. Sanctions are a real form of war without using guns and bombs. And I remember somebody in Iraq telling me, I wish they would just bomb us instead because bombs are pretty precise. They wouldn't hit me. And if they do hit me, it's over in one minute. Sanctions make life impossible forever. And uh, I think this is one of the reasons why people in other countries are intensively upset with what the United States does. We are. And I mean, I've been... I've been paying attention again because of Xi Jinping, uh, his, his historic third term. I've been paying attention to what's been going on there. I've, I've kind of, um, I, I try to, we're in an election cycle and I don't watch the news. I just, I don't, but I like to, I like to dibble dally, dibble, I don't even, I'm not, I, I can't talk. But I like to uh, kind of poke around in different foreign, like uh, the South China, I think the Morning China Star or whatever, um, it's a Hong Kong-based newspaper. Uh, obviously, the government owns uh, a significant share of the Chinese government. But the, the information, it's good to get propaganda from somewhere else. Like, I was paying attention to Russia today when when Russia invaded Ukraine, just because you're. I'm trying to get the full picture. I'm. I'm always going to get our propaganda. I want to get theirs. Um, so Don't look for the full picture. It makes you almost treasonous. Oh. You're looking at Russia today. That's propaganda. It's poisoning your mind. <laughs> Just listen to the State Department <laughs> briefings. There's an official narrative. 
Write that down. And that's what journalists do mostly in America. You want to know what's happening in the U.S.? You call the Pentagon and the State Department and the congressional staffs and the think tanks. And then you've talked to everybody. So Russia today is not even available anymore. RT has been banned in the United States. You cannot get conflicting narratives. The uh, current situation that we're facing in Ukraine is characterized by the most intense disinformation I've ever seen, even worse than Iraq war. So I encourage all thinking Americans to look for sources that contradict the official narrative. Don't swallow that. And it, to take it back to MK Ultra in the 1950s, Americans were told that your government is always pure. It's always doing good things. We didn't have the evidence about this particular program. But any form of skepticism, then as now, is seen as a sense of betrayal. It's like anti-American to open your mind to various perspectives. And I think uh, this was really shown when when the president asked for $40 billion for Ukraine as soon as fighting broke out there. And every single Democrat in the House of Representatives and every single Democrat in the Senate voted for it. There were no voices uh, on the other side because as far as we're concerned, there's only one good side. We love to see the world divided between good and evil. That's the easy way to look at the world. And uh, this goes all the way back to that period of the 50s. I remember coming across a document in which uh, our Secretary of State then uh, John Foster Dulles told the Indonesian president, uh, Sukarno, when Sukarno said, we don't want to be caught up in the Cold War. We don't want to be on one side or the other. Dulles replied, you have to take sides. You have to be on one side or the other. Neutralism is immoral. And I think we still feel that way. We have this idea, you're either on our side or on the side of evil. And too many Americans have swallowed that narrative. I, I I agree, and it scares the shit out of me. It really does. Like, because going back to the U, the Ukraine thing, no, I you could take a poll and ask a lot of Americans, like, who, why, why is this happening? Oh, unprovoked. Well, no, no, we expanded NATO. We kept pushing. We kept poking the proverbial bear. bear. And what what was going on with the Eurovision? What what? Why did a hundred people get murdered? Like what's going on there? We 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 interviewed uh, Ivan Kachanovsky and we we kind of had a podcast on this because I thought it was. Do you mean? Uh, yeah, do you you're mean my you're dumb. My dumb. You're, you're, you're <laughs> the song contest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, thank you, John. Um, I did this, you know, our, the pod, the reason we do this podcast is we want to open people's minds. We want to, we want, we want people to understand that, you know, my, my worldview is like things are often, the truth is stranger than, you know, fiction most of the time. And we, I want to talk to interesting people like you that have, that have kind of, I don't know, per, per, swallowed the, the red pill, you know, if, for lack of a better term, that have looked into the matrix and, and have seen and have lived it. Like you've lived a life where you've seen some of the wide sweeping ramifications of the decisions made in Washington um, and how that how it in, impacts people yeah. on, on a day to day basis. And I, right now, what's what I'm finding interesting is that, um, to kind of bring it back to the the 
the the newspaper, the Hong Kong newspaper, is we're starting to play, play sanctions. And I don't know if this is a good idea, but on China and technology, we're trying to box them out of technology, which I don't. I'm very pro-American, so I also have to. I look through the lens. I have been brainwashed. I'm like, let's go America, right? But but I think it is good, maybe that we are trying to protect our intellectual property. But but what's scary is we're now trying to force like compliance of that with all of our allies. Everyone like, dude, fuck you. You're either with us or you're against us. We don't have jurisdiction like that, right? So I don't I don't know if that's gonna work. Um so I I find that interesting. No one's talking about it, which I also think is kind of freaky. Well first of all as we're speaking uh, the Chancellor of Germany is in China. Yep. We don't want him to go there. But the German economy is export-oriented. They have to deal with China. Uh, you're talking about all the efforts that we're making, and you're absolutely right. In fact, you're understating it, to uh, box in China, to keep China down, to make sure China doesn't succeed, to block China's uh, approach and its rise in the world. That isn't going to work. There yeah. is a way for us to become in a better position to compete with China, and that's to make ourselves better. But that's too complicated. You have to have better education systems. Uh, you have to have a better society at home so that people around the world look at our society and say it's more successful than the Chinese society, which is the opposite of what they would probably say if they looked now. What you said about Ukraine already places you under suspicion because you have challenged the idea that there's only one cause for the war. There's a brutal, evil Hitler, and he invaded a poor, innocent country that never did anything to him. As soon as you say, well, let's look back and see what might have provoked it, you're already off the paradigm. You've already gone too far. You're listening to the wrong channels in your head. So uh, I think this is a real fundamental problem for Americans, and it's one, actually, it's one reason why I really have little faith in the American press, because so much of our press is completely monotone. We are only promoting uh, the views that are uh, acceptable in Washington. You won't find any major American newspaper or other journal that has editorially taken a different position from the U.S. government. How does that make us different from countries where uh, those uh, kinds of conformities are uh, required? You know, it reminds me of an old little uh, piece of doggerel they used to use in England. Let me see if I can remember it. It says, you cannot hope to bribe or twist, thank God, the British journalist. But seeing what he'll do unbribed, you see, there is no reason to. So they, <laughs> yeah. the, there's a feeling on the part of too many people in the press that the United States is like a team. And we all have the same goal. And everybody on a team, like on a football team, has a different role. The role of the press is to make sure that American people all applaud official U.S. policy. I hate that. That's not why I became a reporter. I became a reporter to use my own eyes and not simply to be a stenographer and a transmitter of information from official sources. But I think too many uh, journalists are today. They are. They don't go deep enough. And one of the other things I'd like to bring up that I also see as a giant problem in, in 
of our own making, right, is because we have one of the best militaries ever, right? We were able to take Iraq in 21 days, and Cheney and Bush thought that this was like the height of American power, right? Like hard power. This leads to asymmetrical warfare. Like we have sanctions, right? Like that, that's our kind of our, I guess you'd call that hard power. But then you have like the Chinese, the Russians, other, other countries where like, we, we, we can't beat you in a straight up fist fight, but we can start dividing your allies. We can invest in Africa. And, and I've been kind of monitoring this situation because we're about 20, 30 years behind. I feel like we've turned our back on South America. We haven't really uh, invested in, in, the, in, the, in a lot of the African nations. Someone, whoever it is, definitely not the president, but someone in the government that really understands the levers, from what I, what I can tell, is starting a campaign to have American soft power in countries such as Africa. There's a lot of contracts billions of dollars of money that is being shifted over to build things because we have been completely outcompeted in that front by the, and then also, this is also terrible. Everything that's going to happen is going to be terrible for these people. But I, you know, I, I want to throw that caveat there, but this is just something I've been paying attention to um, that I'm starting to notice that I think that we're starting to wake up and realize like, Oh, we're, we may have, um, we may have fucked up here. Buddy, I, you know, I don't know. What are, are you seeing you know, the same things, or am I crazy? I used to, I used to live in Central America, and uh, mm-hmm. in Central America now, there's one uh, Olympic level stadium. It's in Costa Rica, uh, and so it's the super stadium in that whole region. That was built 100% by the Chinese. Think of what that uh, tells people in Central America about what China does now. Think of the, ask yourself this question. How many countries has China bombed in the last 30 years? Zero. Think of all the countries the United States has bombed. It's Libya, it's Somalia, it's Yemen, it's Afghanistan, it's Iraq. We feel that the answer to problems is military. And China has a very different approach. And and if we want to compete with China, we might want to rethink where we put our priorities and uh, try to win some hearts and minds instead of blowing them up. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, and I want to be respectful of your time. I think that's a great place to end. We, we really do need to get back to winning the hearts and minds and, and being moral and, you know, really promoting freedom and, and prosperity instead of this, this weird, you're all our servants, you must comply or we're going to sanction you type attitude. Like, the, well, I think that the, one of the reasons that the Chinese have been so, so successful is like, let's do, bu- how can we do business? And uh, granted, they do business with people that maybe we, they shouldn't do, but it's like, we're non-interference, you live your life, you do what's best for you. We're going to come in, we're going to build roads, we're going to export your stuff for the ports that we build, and we're going to sell it to the rest of the world. We run our government like a business. What's up? We're here to help. We don't do that. And uh, yeah, it's true. We have this sense that uh, everybody should be in line behind us. And it's so obvious that they should be. We just expect them to fall into line. The Chinese are very different. They're very sophisticated. They have a much longer view. Let's face it. The United States is not even 300 years old. China is more than 3000 years old. China and Iran are the world's two oldest civilizations. One thing that you can draw from those experiences is this lesson. Countries that survived for so long, over many, many centuries, are the countries that realize your power will rise and fall 
over the course of history. You have to adapt to that. You're not going to be on top forever. And you've got to accept the changes in history. Then, if you can ride those currents, you're going to wind up successful over the long run. But the United States has not confronted the possibility that we could have a world that we don't run. It's just not no. part of our DNA over the last hundred years. And I think that's a big adjustment we need to make. I do too. Well, so let's end it there. Maybe that's a nice yeah. finishing point. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking around and listening to our interview with Stephen Kinzer. If you enjoy the show, like and subscribe on YouTube. Give us five stars on iTunes. Tell everybody you can. And thanks for sticking around. See you next week. Yeah.